live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. Welcome, everyone, to tonight's panel, um, The End of the World as We Know It, uh, Faith and Eco-Socialism Beyond the Apocalypse. Tonight's uh, panel is being sponsored by the Religion and Socialism Working Group of the New York City Chapter of the DSA. Um, so shout out to all of you folks. And um, if you want to join us, we're mostly burnt out activists who found faith, lay ministers, some ordained ministers, some people that are just interested in religion and how politics kind of uh, intersect. And they do, as we'll talk about tonight. Um, so our panelists tonight are Shay O'Reilly, who I've been calling a lay leader Lutheran. Um, Shay is a uh, adult convert to Lutheranism, uh, to Christianity rather, and a climate organizer. And then we have Reverend Chelsea McMillan, who is interfaith minister, one of the co-founders for the Center for Sacred Activism, and has organized with Extinction Rebellion, I believe, as well. Um, and then we have Nathan Albright, who I've been calling a writer for the flood and the Catholic worker. Is that an okay introduction for everyone? Is there anything else I need to add? No? Okay. And tonight's topic really, I mean, it's a personal topic for me. I think it is for all of us. I think it is for you too, if you're kind of uh, tuning into this conversation. And we would love to, this is intended to be the beginning of a longer conversation. Uh, so hopefully this will turn into a series um, and we can have you know, some really deep talks about this and organize around this in the future as well. Um, but it comes out of an article by Jan Raymond, Break It a Call, and was talking about like, theopolitical treatises on a Green New Deal. And one of the treatises was um, things that are getting in the way in America of organizing around a Green New Deal. And one of those was... Uh, uh, apocalyptic fatalism and heavenism. So this the idea that the end of the world, the end of this country, the end of the natural environment is something that's kind of predestined to happen. It's going to happen regardless of what we do uh, and how that's deeply ingrained in American culture. And we'll talk about that some. And also this idea of heavenism. So it doesn't matter how bad this world is in the afterlife, or it's going to be okay. Like this is a very temporary um, place for us to be. We're going to get out of here and it's going to be okay. And how this kind of idea works in both very insidious ways, but also very hopeful ways too. I'm, I feel like heavenism comes out of uh, really diminished uh, material circumstances that necessitate this kind of like utopian hopeful thinking. And hopefully we'll talk about that some as well. Um, 
Yeah, and it's also a very personal conversation. And how I've been like framing it for folks um, is a personal story that happened to me last December 2019. I was home at Christmas dinner and, well, Christmas breakfast rather, talking to my ex stepfather, who is Pentecostal, premillennial dispensationalist, believes in the rapture. Um, church has been preaching it since the 80s. Um, and we're talking about the state of the world and the state of politics. And he looks at me and he goes, well, I don't have to tell you what times we're living in. You're in a seminary, right? Uh, and I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, we're living in a hegemonic crisis. We're living in an ecological crisis. We're living in the crisis of late-stage capitalism um, and living at the end of a long series of crises. But I know for him, what he's talking about is this very apocalyptic driven narrative that the end times are near and the second coming of Jesus Christ is coming. Um, and this is very much shapes his politics and his orientation to the world. And of course, like I didn't answer him back with what I had to say. I'm still at the time still trying to have some basic human interactions with my Trump supporting family in Mississippi. And what should I've actually said, though, and I think that's kind of how I want to frame how we dive in to this conversation is what is the apocalypse that we're dealing with when we as faith inspired, faith adjacent, spirituality adjacent, eco-socialist organizers talk about the apocalypse. What is this apocalypse that we're talking about? Um, and maybe I'll ask uh, Chelsea, Reverend Chelsea first. Wow. Um, this is such a great question. I really resonate with some of what you've talked about. I, I come from an evangelical background, so not quite as like, like definitely not as, as uh, intense as the Pentecostal tradition. Uh, what I grew up in isn't quite that intense, but, um, but definitely like had conversations with my mom around like, like we don't have to do anything because God is sovereign. Like God will just take care of us and we're going to go to heaven anyway. So why, why worry about what's happening on this planet? So uh, I really resonate with that. Um, and it's interesting. I, I think about the apocalypse a lot. And I think, I think I, I have for a long time. Like I think I've, I've um, had existential crises since the time I was a child where I was like, what is this world? Uh, and growing up in like the time of Y2K and sort of this, this sense always of like the end is near or like some big destructive sort of scary thing is near. Um, but as I've explored this topic, um, I think it was like probably 10 years ago, a mentor of mine was like, well, you know what the word apocalypse means, right? Like I was going through sort of another existential crisis. I was like 20 years old. I was like, the world's going to end. And this mentor of mine was like, well, you know that the word apocalypse means to lift the veil. It's a revelation. It's not necessarily the end times. Um, so I think that I, the way that I understand apocalypse really is sort of both mythically and mystically. Like Michael Mead talks a lot about the apocalypse as like a mythical thing. It's it's part of the story of our lives. There are beginnings and endings and revelations all the time. And cultures throughout time have gone through beginnings and endings. I know we'll talk a little bit about like decolonizing the apocalypse. Like there's sort of this like privileged 
uh, attitude that goes into thinking that the world is ending now when it's like ended for indigenous cultures many times over on this continent alone. Um, but so to look at it as like, as, as like uh, Michael Mead puts it like archetypally, like archetypically, I think is the word, like the archetypal apocalypse. There are always beginnings and endings, which brings some relief. <laughs> and we're living in 2020 and there is a ton of shit happening. There is some sort of sense of real apocalypse. If you're looking at the climate science, if you're looking at pretty much any system in this country, like education is fucked. Um, economics is fucked. Like everything is like, no, nothing is sustainable. Nothing can go on as as it has been. So we are in some sort of apocalypse and could even be seeing something that feels like the apocalypse, like some sort of great, you know, climate chaos and breakdown. We're already starting to see these things. And so, and the last thing I'll say in this question, because I could just go on and on, but, um, but for me, I, and I said this before, like, I really treat it as like a mystical, uh, path and experience that it's something that we really don't know what's happening or what's going to happen. And that's, that's, that's what spiritual practice is. It's like walking into the unknown and really facing the unknown with courage and creativity and resourcing ourselves and connecting to each other because none of us are going to get through it alone. So so to sort of greet it every single day as as this unknown to walk into is also part of um, my my spiritual practice. Great, yeah, I, yeah. Particularly, what's resonant with me is this idea that just because the United States is probably ending is not the end of the world, or just because like whiteness is fundamentally threatened from like like a structural level doesn't mean the end of the world which seems to be how i like um get echoes of that from you know my evangelical background of how when crises like this happen um the apocalyptic narrative drama starts to be beat and people kind of like fall in line and and we'll talk about later too the um kind of how we find hope in this and what is like our answer uh shay or nathan do you have any idea what's going on i mean what's the apocalypse right now Either one of you can jump in. Sure. Uh, I'll jump in and I'll say that um, I think, first of all, it's probably wise to be really forthright about my theological biases here, uh, which is to say that I am relatively conservative theologically, uh, but quite obviously I'm on a DSA panel. I'm a DSA member, like quite radical politically. Uh, and I think that those actually go quite well together in a lot of ways. Um, so I personally believe um, based on the theology that I adhere to, uh, based on my readership reading of the, the Bible, that there is in fact going to be a sort of end times as people describe it, uh, or shall we say like a moment at which God's work in creation, ultimately reconciling us to each other, us to ourselves and, uh, and the whole world to God uh, is going to come to fruition. I don't know when that's going to take place. And I think actually there's a lot of real warnings, especially in Matthew, the 24th chapter, about predicting that. Um, but 
I believe firmly that it is an event that is happening in the future. At the same time, uh, I, you know, went to seminary and I don't want to bust out all the Greek everywhere here for folks, but um, there's a lot of extremely interesting language in the Revelation to John, uh, especially when it talks about the destruction of the city of Babylon uh, that describes, uh, there's a lot of repetition of this, the smoke from the city goes up forever and ever. Um, and this repetition of forever and ever applies to the smoke from the city. It applies to kind of other um, things that occur at this, this ending moment. But the language that's used in the Greek isn't actually a, a distance language. It's actually a temporal language in a lot of ways. So it has this connotation of um, eternity. And where I kind of get a little weird with it, and I, you know, am going to be that kind of weirdo, spooky, uh, like deep belief in the supernatural person here uh, is that I actually think that in some ways that that kind of ultimate event um, echoes back through time towards us in ways that are marked and that reveal themselves throughout our work. Uh, and there's a lot of signs of this, right? I'm going to keep referring to the Bible because that's my holy text. But when we hear Jesus say that the kingdom of God is in and amongst you, um, it's not within you, it's not a personal thing, but it's actually right present there. When we hear a lot of the, the biblical prophets proclaiming the kingdom of God, one of the things they're talking about is the way in which this ultimate reconciliation is manifested in small, imperfect, fractured ways through all of our relationships with each other and the work that we do in the world and the ways in which God's grace shows up in our lives. So I think that there's a lot of ways in which our culture has either diminished the apocalypse to be this future event that has no bearing to what we currently look at um, or has actually exaggerated uh, an apocalypse for whiteness, for America, uh, in ways that I think are are actually blasphemous, right? Because like you said, the end of white America is not actually the biblical apocalypse. Like it's not the end of the world. In fact, there's a lot of good signs that the end of white America is part of the work of God, that it is another of these demonic powers that has to be overthrown. Uh, and so I... I see these, these trends as being sort of two sides of the same coin in our culture. Um, and I'm hoping that in this conversation we can get super weird about it and talk about all those parts of the apocalypse that maybe are a little bit uncomfortable to talk about, maybe make us feel a little bit like zealots uh, or like folks who are coming to this with a, um, with a, with a, a bent that I think can embrace the uncomfortable parts of our reality as well as the exciting parts of it. Yeah, I think we should be, get weird about it because obviously, I mean, it's like this, um, when we talk about climate change and we talk about the ecological crisis, it, we, I feel like theological and spiritual language kind of, uh, can, uh, start to name what's like beyond like our like spatial and temporal like grass like we can't understand the magnitude of this crisis and that's where like theological language and conviction really starts to make sense i feel like um for me i know that uh beginning to understand the magnitude of the ecological crisis particularly as like a social crisis as like this in-depth crisis throughout history of social domination and kind of its latest manifestations in capitalism, um, 
was part of my journey back into this kind of religious world. And Nathan, you spoke, I think, when we talked uh, kind of about the apocalypse and we're beginning to, I don't know, get on at the same page about what we would talk about tonight, that you found, I think, in your activism and the way that you were thinking, uh, that suddenly, like, religious language was starting to make more sense um, or like it's like stories from their like ancient stories are starting to become more applicable to like our current times. I heard you right. I think how would you kind of explain that to our audience here tonight? Like your um, kind of shift there. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I guess first I just want to say I appreciate being uh, invited to to uh, join the conversation and um, appreciate everyone, everything everyone has said so far, the other panelists and, and Ryan for uh, reaching out to me. Um, I'm definitely not, uh, the description of the event, I think said something about faith leaders. I would not describe myself as a faith leader, but I, um, I'm going to try to figure out my, my, uh, what, what my best contribution to the conversation is. Um, uh, yeah, so so I think as far as um, what you're referring to, uh, I guess I would just direct people to if they're interested in 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 um, seeing like a longer discussion of, of that concept of kind of older myths and stories becoming seeming more like prophecy and kind of becoming more and more relevant. Um, that's something that uh, I wrote about with some of the other some of the other editors at the publication that I write for. Um, a couple of years ago. Uh, so if people want to look at that, it's, a, it's on the floodmag.com. And that's like the first thing we ever published. If you want to just like scroll back. Um, and I feel like, I feel like I said everything there that um, at the time that, that made sense to say about that. Uh, and, and you also said it well, um, but as far as the, the question about apocalypse and, and decolonizing the apocalypse um, and what it means, uh, I was thinking a lot about this and, and what could be said about it, and I think th I think the first thing that I would I would add to the conversation that we've had so far is obviously the um, you know it's I think it's re it is really like helpful and uh, a little bit reassuring to to um, remind us of the, of what the etymological history of the term is, but I think we also don't want to make any mistakes that we're actually we are talking about. A possibility of the end of life on this planet, um, and that's not an exaggeration by any means. That that's that's what scientists are are actually talking about, um, and and that's kind of an incredible thing because scientists are usually pretty pretty measured in everything that they say or do. So to to get anyone to come to that point where they're talking about actually concern about life on anything larger than like you know. Uh, microscopic organisms surviving on this planet because of a, a mass extinction caused by carbon emissions and, and, and greenhouse gases uh, generated by humans' economic activity. That's like, I think we should just be at least really clear that that's actually on the table and, uh, and that, that whether that is an unveiling that leads us to stopping that from happening, that would be wonderful and ideal, I think, uh, but I think it's going to take a lot of work from all of us. I mean, an incredible gargantuan task to, to imagine accomplishing that. Um, and, and I think the other thing that I was, the other point that I guess I was just hoping to make on this 
topic is just uh, the idea of um, decolonizing the, the apocalypse. I think, um, uh, and this is mostly because I read a, an article a few years ago um, by, I think, Eve Tuck, the, the um, academic Eve Tuck, who in her, um, her paper is along with another academic, uh, I don't remember the other person's name, but Eve, Eve Tuck is one of the authors on the article, and it's called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. And so I thought maybe I could just read a quick like excerpt of what she said there, because um, I think it's helpful in this conversation. Um, and she says in, in writing about decolonization, it's not converting indigenous politics to a Western doctrine of liberation. It's not a phil, uh, philanthropic process of helping the at-risk and alleviating suffering. It's not a generic term for struggle against oppressive conditions and outcomes. The broad umbrella of social justice may have room underneath for all these efforts. By contrast, decolonization specifically requires the repatriation of indigenous land and life. Decolonization is not a, meta a metonym for social justice. Um, and so I, I thought that was useful, not just in like, uh, you know, let's like totally reframe the conversation, but actually to say, like, let's take that statement really seriously, that that actually is, I think, you know, one of the only kind of possible ways forward it, as far as that other conversation about, you know, how, how could we imagine this not ending in the destruction of life on the planet? Um, you know, uh, I was at the UN climate summit last year and, and one of the, the one person who was asked to actually speak to the general assembly who represented 400 million indigenous people on the planet spoke and made an incredible statement, um, and reminded everyone at the General Assembly that uh, even though there are only 400 million indigenous people on the planet, they preserve 80% of the biodiversity of the world. And so it's really no, no metaphor at all to say that to, to avoid this kind of cataclysmic end to life on Earth, uh, listening to indigenous wisdom would be, would be probably the single greatest step that we could imagine taking. Um, so yeah, I just thought that that would be helpful to add. Oh, it's, it's very helpful. <laughs> um, particularly, I mean, I was reading in the book that this event's named after apparently, um, before we started. And I learned that as Christopher Columbus was like landing in the, in the Americas or what would become the Americas, the, um, he was quoting the book of revelation according to this. And so this like idea, and I think we can get at what um, kind of like the evangelical um, apocalypse is or the conservative evangelical apocalypse is and what these like imaginaries are. Um, it's rooted in settler colonialism. Um, this like new world and this new heaven has always been a frontier. Um, you can see with the evangelical support of um, the settlements today in Palestine, is still really um, fired up by evangelicals believing that the apocalypse is near and we need to establish and reinforce the nation state of Israel. So in a way, this, um, these apocalyptic narratives from the very beginning in the United States are still very much driven um, by kind of extractivism. I was thinking, to, of course, of, I don't know if y'all saw today, it was perfect timing, or maybe not perfect timing, just like a symptom of the apocalypse. But the pastor who said today that God intended this planet as a disposable planet. Did y'all see that? 
No? Oh, man. So it's a very long, well, it's a very short sermon talking about um, why climate change is wrong, why you shouldn't listen to climate scientists and consensus science. But talking about this planet is disposable um, and how we should be using particularly fossil fuels to give energy to poor people. So there's like this development narrative in there as well. So it's still this um, apocalypse is both like driven by the need to extract material things and use up the land and treat the land as it's disposable, but also take up space and to kind of build and develop. Um, Reverend Chelsea, you've done work particularly on decolonizing the apocalypse and kind of, um, or I think maybe it's like reclaiming. Um, How do you kind of like see this like, um, or begin to deconstruct how the apocalypse is like construed in the United States? Or like what advice do you have for us? (laughs) Oh, Well, I, I I just had like so many questions come up from what you were saying, and I'm just like curious about the history of apocalyptic apocalypticism. Like, did that start with the early Christians? I don't know. You know, I'm curious about that. But um, um, yeah, I'm just well, yeah. So reclaiming apocalypse is really about sort of reclaiming this word, like coming to understand what it really means and being able to face it um, as opposed to like letting the end of the world sort of like let us off the hook. Like, oh, it's like, oh, the apocalypse is like something that we go through. It doesn't just like end the world. So what does that mean for us in our lives as activists and as people who are facing climate breakdown, which is everybody, (laughs) Um, you know, is it really about mitigation or is it about adaptation Um, or both to some to some degree? Um, You know, it's interesting because I'm uh, sorry, I'm like sort of pulled between the question around the culture in the U.S. Like, I don't know that I've given that as much thought. I do think it's the thing that we're swimming in. It's like this water that we actually don't realize that we're, we're, we've been swimming in for a while. Our movies are about the, about zombie apocalypses. Like, uh, like everything is about the end of the world, you know, there's, and there's always like a clean ending. There's always like this, like hero comes in and saves the day. There's a love story there's a lot of like avoiding the messiness of what this actually means. And, and I think the more that we really get close and up, like up close and personal with the apocalypse and let it be messy and let it, um, let it disturb us. I have this teacher Bio Komalafe, who's a Nigerian writer, and he talks about like letting it disturb us and, and kind of imagining the end of the world, um, or like not imagining the end of the world, like not letting letting our, our sort of preconceptions decide what happens. Um, and that the more that we, we sort of just open ourselves to this great unknown, the more that we can really be real with what's happening and and respond to it as it comes. Um, yeah, that's a good point. You're yeah. talking a lot about how... Um, the apocalyptic imagination in the United States is fairly constrained to like a few outcomes. Um, 
most of it being like the post-apocalyptic narrative that we've been sold for, you know, for the last, like, you know, in our lifetimes, um, which is like a very doomed scenario. Um, Shay, do you have anything, I mean, as a Christian, how do you respond to kind of the history of Christian apocalypticism? Um, and how do you like respond constructively? So if what we're asking is in the context of uh, this pastor's little message about how the earth is there for us to use up, um, mm -hmm. I think it's really important to ground this conversation in a lot of the social research and the social science research. Uh, like Catherine Hayhoe points this a lot. She's a Christian climate scientist who is evangelical. Her father's an evangelical pastor uh, based out of Texas. She is, um, although her dad's Canadian. And um, she points to research a lot that suggests that the strongest determinant of climate denialism is not religious identification, but partisan identification uh, and that in fact so if you take say the, the outliers the uh, say the Republican Lutherans and the Republican uh, Episcopalians and then also the Democratic Evangelicals, Democratic Pentecostals, um, you'll find that the Democrats believe quote-unquote believe in climate change whatever that means uh, and the Republicans quote-unquote do not believe in climate change. Um, and so I think it's really important that we ground ourselves in the fact that like this is part of an ideological project uh, that maps to a certain extent onto partisan identification here in the United States. Um, and that it's not, it, it enlists theology in its project as essentially all ideological projects do in this country uh, and in the world. Um, and that therefore, when we engage with this kind of narrative, we have to understand that it's working back from these preconceptions uh, and trying to find biblical justification for it, rather than starting from other sort of foundational beliefs that we could point to instead. Now, you know, I went to seminary, right? I know that you're at seminary right now. Uh, and we all know that no, no theology is independent of context. Uh, that it's not like nobody actually like reads the Bible as in a blank slate and somehow interprets it correctly for people, right? Like, and, and, and comes to the one true meaning of this text. Um, but it's worth taking into account uh, that I think that a lot of the narrative that backs up this reading is uh, a narrative that's been instilled through the ways in which American Christianity in particular uh, has been hand in hand with capitalism from the very, from, for a very long time at this point. Um, and when I've spoken with people, with Christians from, from Tuvalu, for example, which is a country that is most a threat from rising sea level that actually will simply not exist uh, several decades down the line. Um, their, the way that they read the Bible basically instinctively brings them towards a more left, we might call it a quote unquote left wing reading of it. Uh, one that does not, in fact, state that the earth is there for us to use up uh, and to kind of rapaciously pillage through. Uh, similarly, one thing that was really helpful to me was reading uh, Ernesto Cardinal's The Gospel in Salentiname. Um, and that, for those of you who don't know it, that is a collection of his relation of his work reading the Bible uh, and parts of the Bible in different pericopes or, or passages from the Bible with peasants on this Nicaraguan island. Um, we're all very, very poor. Um, and they instinctively grasp for liberationist readings of the text, 
that is what makes the most sense to them instinctively. Uh, and so when we look at some of these apocalyptic texts in the Bible and we say, well, this obviously means that, you know, ah, it says to, to have dominion over the earth. That means that we can mine and drill and do everything that we want to do uh, in service of God. That's not actually a, that is, that is a, a reading that is instilled in us by our cultural context, which itself is a product of these capitalist logics of extraction and dominion, right? That dominion and stewardship mean something very different depending on what you're coming to the text uh, with. And so I think that um, as a Christian, I would, I would challenge us to move beyond uh, texts that we think are explicitly about the earth, I guess, and to instead look at the broad variety of texts that describe what it is to be a human being, what our relationship is with God and what our relationship is to be with each other and the ways in which we fall short of that. Because ultimately, I think that when we talk about the earth as an abstraction, what we're doing is we're ignoring the very real human suffering that come, and suffering of non-humans too. But um, I think a lot of these communities are primarily concerned with human suffering uh, that comes with climate change and climate devastation and catastrophe. Uh, and so I, I kind of come to my understanding of the work that is ahead of us as people who are um, dealing with the climate catastrophe um, from reading texts like James 5, right? Like, woe to you rich people. Uh, and also from reading texts about the ways in which, um, you know, the ways in which God wants us to to live with each other and the ways in which God's relationship to us is described. Hmm. No, thanks for that. Um, so yeah, what we're coming to text with, what we're coming to even apocalyptic scenarios with, like how we are interpreting, I mean, grew up hearing, like reading the signs of the time. So obviously you're going to be like reacting based off, you know, what your like ideological frameworks are. And in the United States, you're right, that has been this capitalist and extractivist um, ideological framework. And I'm just wondering why um, those frameworks point to doom more often than not right now, currently. Um, and I think we're um, oftentimes, I mean, I was joking on Twitter that this is like a doomer versus bloomer conversation where um, you, you're like severely just like depressed about the climate crisis and you have kind of adopted a fatalistic attitude, like knowing, as Nathan was rightly mentioning, that we are dealing with, um, you know, very cataclysmic real possibilities um, right now and possibilities um, of really facing, you know, a sixth mass extinction, which is probably, which is ongoing currently. Um, so are, are we falling into this like doom trap by this like fatalism, this um, kind of apocalyptic fatalism or this like capitalist apocalypse by preaching doom? I know that many of us like don't want to uh, become equated with uh, kind of like the conservative uh, fire and brimstone, like hellfire preachers that have been preaching this stuff for decades, been hawking it for decades. Um, it's in our it's in our blood here in America, um, but it is like a fairly like doom oriented scenario. Um, so maybe just 
wondering is like, are we falling into those traps? Yeah. Do you want to have an answer for that? I actually want to hear from Nathan. I'm going to call you out, Nathan, uh, because I'm I'm curious about this as a as a Catholic worker, and I I'm curious about it because to me, when I look back at the richness of our of my Christian tradition in grappling with these questions, I tend to refer back to um, a lot of the questions that people were grappling with during the Cold War and with the potential of nuclear apocalypse. And Catholic worker folks have uh, been part of a very rich tradition of. Catholic peacemakers that included people who took on extremely bold and daring actions, uh, kind of against the nuclear threat. So, Nathan, I'm wondering if you can, if you want to take this on a little bit. Sure. Um, I mean, yeah, the Catholic worker uh, has long been a place with lots of doomers uh, <laughs> and lots of those personality types, and still definitely is. If anyone wants to just go by and visit. Uh, can easily have a conversation with anyone who believes the world will end imminently. Um, they're increasingly being proven correct, I think. But uh, yeah, and, and also the, some of those actions, some of those peace actions uh, are not just long ago, but including the past couple of years. Um, two of the people that I was living with in, at the New York Worker were down in Georgia for the Kings Bay action. I'm not sure if some of you know about that, but you could, if anyone's interested, they could look up the Kings Bay plowshares and what they've been up to. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know necessarily how to speak to that from a Catholic worker perspective. Um, obviously what has always been important to that tradition is to, you know, as much as people are always kind of thinking in those really broad political terms, they still ground themselves in the immediate realities of, of, um, people who have, well, in the, in the Catholic terms, in the works of mercy, um, so to, to feed people, to clothe people, to give people water, to visit prisoners, to uh, visit people who are in the hospital, to just do, you know, everything that's in your power and that's in front of you um, to help people who are suffering with, with you know, the, uh, the results of capitalism as it exists right now. Um, so... I think I think that's definitely one aspect of of a Catholic worker response. But I guess from from my personal um, thinking on this, like one, one thing that occurred to me, and that again uh, that I kind of wrote down or, or pulled a little quote from, is that um, uh, are you guys frozen? Is it? Can you guys still hear me? Yeah. You so okay. Uh, um, is that I, I wrote something at. A year or two ago, um, just kind of looking at the um, oil companies' PR campaigns and, and like just media campaigns in general to to try to discourage people from taking action on global warming. And and um, one thing that really stuck out to me um, uh, that I think is really relevant is that uh, the PR companies that are used by oil companies, uh, like there's just a common like. PR handbook um, strategy. And so let me just read real quick, like uh, a kind of paraphrasing of the, um, the theorist Goran Thierburn, uh, who lays out the three most common PR strategies for delaying meaningful action. He says, there are three basic ways to keep people apathetic about a problem. Number one, argue that it doesn't exist. Number two, argue that it's actually a good thing rather than a problem. Or number three, uh, sorry, I lost my place real quick. <laughs> 
<laughs> Suspense on this one. Number three, argue that even if it is a problem, there's nothing they can do about it anyway. So obviously, cigarette companies, oil companies, a lot of big corporations have used these strategies over time, and they tend to use them when they're most convenient. So when it was still not very well known what cigarettes do to you, you could argue they're actually really great for your health. Cigarettes are they're going to help you breathe better. Uh, maybe they're going to cure your lung problems. Obviously, the same thing happened with um, oil companies arguing about what carbon emissions do to the planet. And as people have wised up to all of that, uh, we've kind of moved into the phase where the last remaining argument is, well, yes, it's destroying the planet, but it's done. It's already over. There's nothing we can do about it. And obviously, that's where people are going with it. And this is, again, this is something that was written in the 90s. Uh, so this is, um, it's been known for a long time what strategies people would, would use. So so to your question, Ryan, about whether we're falling into a pitfall, I think we have to be really careful that we're not um, telling people that the fight is over because this is actually the most important it's ever been to fight and the, the most realistic chance of of doing something that, that I think any of us has ever seen or maybe will ever see. So, um, so yeah, I just think we have to be careful about that. Yeah, and yeah, you're about to say something. Well, yeah, if I can just jump in, because I, I think this is a really interesting place to be. And as I'm sort of reflecting on, on even just like the doom and gloom stories that I sort of grew up with and, you know, kind of like became an adult with and, and, and still living with, um, there's something about, I think, like, I'm wondering if there's sort of, dare I say, like a gift in the gravity of feeling the apocalypse upon us to really kind of bring us to reality and, and to be present with the destruction that's happening in the world um, and letting that transform us as as we would transform, say, when we're when we're facing the death of a loved one, um, there, there's something really deep that can happen there that isn't fatalist as, as in like, we're just deciding what happens. Like there's just going to be death and the end times. Um, but not, but also not jumping into any sort of like naive hope where, which, because I think that's really easy for us to just react to all of the the fear and the pain and the grief and say, well, there is still hope. Like, we still could do something. You know, even as a climate activist, like, you know, I basically, like, volunteer full-time for Extinction Rebellion. And sometimes I'm like, I don't, I don't know if we're actually going to convince every world government to suddenly in the next like few years, do everything that needs to be done to mitigate the climate crisis, because we're already, for one thing, we're already seeing the climate crisis. And so there's something I think in, in what you were talking about, Nathan, about the way that Catholic workers, like there's like this tradition of just like taking care of the people around them. And I think that that there's something in that that happens when we really come face to face with with death and grief and and let it transform us into like well all all that's left is love all all that's left is taking care of each other and like being with each other in 
in something that's totally unknown to us um, and, and accept that we are already seeing climate breakdown and, and the breakdown of all these systems that, that, you know, it's funny because it's like, sometimes I think about like, what world do you want to save or what world do we want to save? Like, is it a world that we're all separate from each other and, and, like dominating each other and extracting from the earth. Like, like when we think about saving the world, is that the world that we're saving or is it something more akin to what, what Nathan was talking about with, with the Catholic worker tradition? Well, I also want to be, I think that we should also talk about um, that. We, we are in a moment with several different potential outcomes Um and I'm, I think that the, the outcome of, of human extinction is definitely a possible one, and I'm glad that we're really addressing it. Uh, but I also think that there's a, another outcome, perhaps even more likely, that is what a lot of really great eco-socialist thinkers, um, thinking about like Daniel Donna Cohen, um, or refer to as like climate apartheid, uh, right, or eco-apartheid, which is a scenario in which the world address, quote unquote, addresses climate change, uh, but in a way that is that amplifies the existing inequalities and the sort of rapacious capitalism that we see, uh, and that uses it as an opportunity to, you know, conduct uh, genocide against the poor by the rich. Uh, or to have this sort of armed lifeboat approach uh, that involves a border wall and militarization against climate refugees and everything else like that, that I think may even be more likely than a kind of ultimate human extinction event. Uh, and to me, that's, you know, a less final possibility in the sense that, you know, it's not like, okay, one day there's, there's human life on this planet and the next day there isn't. Uh, but it's also one that fills me with a deep dread and one that I think demands that we continue with a struggle and that we continue to testify uh, to this alternate way of being in the world uh, and this, this way that proclaims life over death, um, that proclaims kind of grace over servitude um, and that uh, really kind of proclaims liberation. Um, so when we talk about kind of climate change doom, uh, the sort of climate apocalypse, climate catastrophe, we're not just talking about kind of either we continue to have human life as planet or we don't, we're actually talking about this variety of experiences, uh, all of which contain uh, different, differing amounts, I guess, of, of servitude to death, whether it's extinction or whether it's, um, you know, mass murder or whether it's, uh, attempting to find a, a more equitable way out of this mess that we're in. Yeah, I think what's the common phrase is eco-socialism or barbarism um, and climate apartheid. And it's definitely an existing reality now um, in terms of like even like heat deaths in neighborhoods. If you look at where heat deaths are in New York City, they're mostly like focused in black and brown neighborhoods. Um, and I think I, I think uh, We Act has a great map that they released earlier. Um, we Act Harlem, um, a great map of like kind of the breakdown of what this reality is now, too, like climate apartheid now. Um, 
And it is, you're right. This, I, what I'm, what I'm hearing is, and I, what we've, I've talked about with a few of you too, is the, the idea of like, what are we hoping for? Um, like, what's the hope that, what's the world that, you know, that we're hoping comes out of this struggle. Um, and really sometimes it is easier to tell people that there is no hope, you know, for this consumerist society, for this imperialist society, for this country um, in, in this way, because like, will the United States exist as it is after a quote unquote just transition? Um, you know, like that is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the status quo continuing on that's the status quo is actively crumbling now in front of us and actually and it can't coexist with uh with like an ecological society and with a fully democratic society that we kind of want is the end goal of eco-socialism um yeah uh and i really like this approach too of um of i think what is most generative for me and what I'm hearing people saying is the apocalypse again is like the lifting the veil, things being revealed. It is this approach uh, that, that addresses the world as it is um, and to really seize the crisis now and for what it is and for addressing it with our hands, not just like us talking here on a panel. And really, I mean, like sometimes you're afraid of like things like the Green New Deal and address transition just becoming like the eco, like the eco rapture for liberals. It's like once we get a Green New Deal, everything's going to be great. The second coming is like the Green New Deal sometimes. Um, and I, I just like wonder, like, in what ways um, and we're starting to get closer to time where we start asking questions, but. I guess in what ways do these conversations, these, these, this healing, this just transition, this uh, kind of addressing the problem with our practical lives, um, it's not just like this insular, like let's make an ark in the eco village out in, in upstate New York and like shut ourselves off from the rest of the world, like I think like previous generations have done, which is those things are important. Um, but we're also too, we're talking about systemic change here. Um, so I think in y'all's experience, what are the ways um, in which like these conversations around healing and just transformation are happening, happening in like local contexts, but also like scale up significantly for like a Green New Deal, for instance? Should I, should I start? Uh, so I'll, I'll share, I think I'm just identified in the program as a, a climate organizer. Um, I work for a big green environmental nonprofit. Um, it's historically white-led. Um, most of our upper-level staff are still white. Obviously, I'm, I'm white. Um, and I want to be really explicit when we talk about this, that a just transition is a framework that has been developed by frontline climate justice leaders um, who are Black, Indigenous people of color. Um, and these are people who have been, whose communities have been extracted from, who have been overpolluted, um, and who have and who are continuing to live closest to the problem. And as a consequence of that, they actually have the best solutions to the crisis that we're in. Um, they are people whose lives are inscribed with the crisis and who are able to articulate visions of freedom that like I, as somebody who is not a member of these communities, cannot envision in my own capacity. Um, and so I think that it's really imperative for us to lift up that leadership um, 
my organization um, was one of the organizations that was called out by a group of these frontline communities that was gathering in Hamas Pueblo, New Mexico, back in the 90s, uh, that lifted up what they would have become called the Hamas Principles of Democratic Organizing, which are principles by which um, these communities organize and by which they expect other uh, organizations to organize. Um, there are things like letting people speak for themselves, like no more white environmental groups, um, putting out like fundraising bulletins that have pictures of poor brown children on them or anything like that, you know? Um, and also making sure to work in a spirit of, of mutuality and solidarity uh, to kind of incorporate um, people's like demands across the labor movement um, into the environmental movement and uh, environmental demands into the labor movement. So. Some of the stuff that I think is really, really exciting is the work of the good people at Uprose based in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, um, who have been tremendous leaders for decades and who I've had the privilege of joining besides uh, in this, this struggle. Um, they recently won their fight against the rezoning of Industry City, um, which would have brought luxury hotels and big box stores to their community, uh, displaced many of their community members, and also ruined uh, one of the primary industrial waterfront areas left in the city, uh, which is a huge resource for climate resiliency and for green manufacturing. They're advancing what they call the Green Resilient Industrial District uh, instead of that. Um, and it's something that I uh, want to encourage everybody to go and read and, and to lift up. Um, and also, this is a way of moving beyond uh, what a lot of these communities are lifting up as uh, moving from the extractive economy into the regenerative economy, right? Um, and movement generation has done a really good uh, like zine about the just transition framework that looks at the ways in which we can do that. Um, and some of that work has been incorporated into the new demands for a Green New Deal. Uh, I think one of the key takeaways from that is that this can't be a sort of top-down Washington says this is what's going to happen and allocates funding to these specific priorities. It's actually got to be something that's responsive and creative um, and puts resources in the hands of these communities that have their solutions, right? Like it doesn't kind of uh, give a one-size-fits-all government program out there, um, but instead actively relocates wealth and land um, and that specifically gives communities that have been subjected to extraction, whether they're indigenous communities that have been robbed of their land and subjected to genocide or black communities that come out of centuries of their very persons being sold and stolen um, and used for wealth development of white Americans um, that actually like lift up those solutions and give them control of their own destinies. Uh, and I think that that's at the ideal, like what we're talking about when we talk about eco-socialism. I'd also lift up the Red New Deal. Um, the Red Nation has done some really, really great work that ties uh, communism to indigenous liberation, that understands communism as the goal of indigenous liberation and indigenous liberation is the goal of communism. Um, that's been really agitating to me in a really positive way. And I use the term agitational as an organizer, which is agitation is a good thing. We, we need to be agitated out of our comforts, out of our privileges, out of our blindnesses. Um, or out of our, our lack of willingness to see things. Um, and so that's been very useful to me and I'll, I'll pass it to the other folks on the panel because I'm really eager to find some new resources for my own understanding too. Yeah, Reverend Chelsea, 
How do you think about this? So I know you've done, I mean, when I heard regenerative, I just heard of like, I thought of regenerative, I can't even say it hardly anymore these days. I got really good at saying it, regenerative culture with an extinction rebellion, how that's kind of like a a central tenet, right? Um, And how does that relate to, I guess, like the policy demands of extinction rebellion? Yeah. Um, and I think it, I think it dovetails so well with, um, what Shay just lifted up. Um, well, so first of all, yeah, regenerative culture is one of the main principles upon which extinction rebellion is founded. And it's really about, um, both how do we, how do we organize in a more regenerative way and how are we building a more regenerative world? And I think, I think one of the main things that, um, that is an example of this, like XR, it's funny because it's like XR, like totally great on the Green New Deal. And we're we're less about the policies and more about the, the process by which these policies are decided. So like here in, in New York City, we're really pushing for a municipal citizens assembly, which is um, a court, a, a, a city mandated uh, like law, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a legally binding, that's the the phrase, um, citizens assembly that would be demographically representative of the city of New York, which means that it would be like 61% people of color. It would be half people who don't speak English at home. I could be getting some of these stats a little bit wrong, but um, it would be like 10% people um, with disabilities. It would, it would, not be any longer this like mostly white, mostly rich people in power deciding the the future of the city. Um, and that's and it's not just one of Extinction Rebellion New York City's demands. The our third demand is this demand for citizens assemblies wherever wherever XR is. Um, and our fourth demand is about all of these policies have to be based on on a just transition. Um, and, and I think what's really important for me, I've been wondering about like, how do we have actions and organizing that's, that's more, that are more regenerative. And so we just had a September rebellion and we started the whole thing, uh, with a grief ceremony that, that morphed into a march through central park with, with um, beautiful artwork and songs, and um, and and then we ended with a rally at Columbus Circle. And throughout the whole month, we had Rebel Fests where people could get together and eat and build community and mingle with each other. Um, we had uh, an action in City Hall, um, right in front of City Hall, at the end of September. That was. Um, that was really beautiful and profound and, and it was quiet and we sang together. And, and so I'm like sort of wondering about this regenerative culture and like how we, how we are both relating to each other in the work that we're doing, but also in the way that we're, we're expressing our messages and, um, and also like lifting up the voices of others around us and working with others. Um, Because we really can't, we can't get anywhere if we're just going to like put in another, you know, if we're going to put in systems that are extracted to ourselves and, and where we're burning out and, and it's just hierarchical and, and there's no time to connect with each other. Um, Cause community is what's going to really 
take us through whatever apocalypse we're in and whatever apocalypse is coming. So regenerative culture is a really, really big part of that. Yeah, I always thought the the um, the citizens assembly model was like really like exciting prospect within Extinction Rebellion, and it's like prefigured prefigurative politics and a good um, like an opportunity, and that's like a like a policy mechanism that's been used abroad to like a fair amount of success. It seems um, well, good. Well, we are almost at an hour, and I knew this we would get here, and still have so much to talk about. Um, but if you have any questions, please start throwing them in the Q&A. Love to answer anything. Um, if you're new to Zoom webinars like me, their Q&A is like down here on the bottom. I did, we did get a question earlier from Rachel, who's been active in the chat, um, that what we were talking about made Rachel think of the climate change doom clock that was put up. And you think this is like fits into the there's nothing you can do tactic. And I would say, yeah, it's like, there's like hardly any way of turning back time and also uh, hardly any way of like um, stopping the climate crisis. Um, so yeah, if you have any questions, please ask them in here. And if not, we can continue on this conversation. Um, let me see, where are we at now? Good, so we're in this conversation though about um, community and really building up resilient communities, it seems like. Um, should, I mean, all of us in a certain way feel a spiritual pull towards this work. Um, and as I think, I mean, many of us do, maybe we're spiritual but not religious, where a large demographic is, or feel some connection to the earth in a way that you can't explain or it's mystical or the interdependence. Um, is it okay to go back to your religious community at home? Um, Shay, as like uh, an adult convert to Christianity, how have you felt, um, have you, how have you found the Christian community? Um, have you found it welcoming particularly on this issue? Um, how, what are the formations that that's taking for you right now? And then, and then Reverend Chelsea, I think it'd be interesting as you work as like an interfaith minister is kind of feel like in the realm of spiritual, but not religious and really helping adults concern. I mean, that's how, how I have imagined who you are. Um, it seems like. <laughs> so I'll, I'll give it a shout out first to um, my faith community, which is Our Savior's Lutheran Atonement, Our Savior's Atonement Lutheran Church in Washington Heights. Um, big shout out to Pastor John Flack, who is, uh, majorly concerned about climate change and incorporates it into many of his sermons. But they're also extremely traditional Lutheran sermons, right? If you go to my church on a Sunday via Zoom at this point, you will hear in his sermon uh, the cross on the resurrection every Sunday. It's also going to come in the context of the whole creation is groaning, right? Um, just as we ourselves groan for the redemption of our bodies. And that's something that gives me a lot of uh, like faith and hope and, and peace and, and kind of the, the, the peace of the Lord in some ways, which is that, you know, this can be really grim work, right? And I think that Reverend Chelsea was touching on this and Nathan were touching on this, which is like that there's a sense in which 
these possibilities are, are deeply horrifying and deeply traumatizing for us to kind of be waiting around for them. Uh, we see our friends, in many cases, suffering due to climate change already. And um, to be reassured that God is working even in this time to reconcile all creation to God's self uh, is... It's just great, you know? Um, I know that, that that's really lucky. A lot of faith communities and Christian communities in particular don't address it from that perspective and, and find it really hard to talk about. One thing that I've, I say to my volunteers who are mostly secular a lot is that um, the majority of people in this country are concerned about climate change and want to see action take on it, uh, taken on it, but uh, only a tiny minority have ever spoken to their friends or family about it. Um, and that's something that needs to change. It needs to happen in our faith communities. It needs to happen around the dinner table. It needs to happen everywhere that we are for us to be able to start making a difference. Yeah, this... yeah and oftentimes when I like, for instance, like go to explain this to my family, I am confronted with like these way station and apocalyptic fatalisms and heavenisms almost of and so it's, it is, yeah, I'm not sure why I don't talk about it. Well, I actually, I think if you know me or my friend, you've probably heard about climate change like 5,000 times by now. Um, also, Nathan, I didn't want to throw you out of this conversation, um, which was that you mentioned like the spiritual aspects for you of when you went to Standing Rock. And I know Standing Rock was kind of like a watershed moment for a lot of people that I talked to in terms of like relating to the... Um, the spirituality of this movement. Um, can you speak to that experience a little bit more? And I think how it was both like for you to be an activist there or a presence there, um, and then how that was captured like broadly in kind of like media about the event, um, like the spirituality in particular, I guess, like white activists, like uh, um, interacting with that spirituality. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for asking about that. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate, uh, my experience in terms of like involvement there. I was, I was very much an observer and, and, um, I was there for about 10 days, um, you know, sometime in November, uh, after, yeah. Uh, and for me, I mean, I was, I was, yeah, it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever had period. Just, it was really incredible to see all these things um, that I had read about, thought about, you know, felt deeply about and, and been searching for kind of come together, you know, to, to you know, I had um, studied a lot about uh, indigenous communities and, and really felt in an academic sense, the need to, to follow leadership uh but so to actually be in a place where there that was an actual indigenous-led movement doing something very immediately and the opportunity to, to like go risk arrest risk arrest be arrested like be involved in a, in a something that just had an actual tangible result at the time obviously it was there was it's been back and forth you know <laughs> a lot of times we've we've won then we didn't win then we, they've won and they didn't win um, but but just to be doing something that was so tangible to say like this we're trying to stop this you know extractive industry from from poisoning the water of this community right here these indigenous leaders have asked people to come out and they've asked people to come out 
to get to know the community, to support the community, to put themselves in line, and to and the number one thing that was that was asked of of allies, um, whether they were able to be there in person or not, was was to pray. Uh, and so all every action, every single action that we, that at least while I was there, and I, I think it you know uh, is for more than just the time that I was there, but at least while I was there, every single action that we did was centered around. Uh, uh, listening to what elders asked, and that was always to to go somewhere and to pray in a line. Uh, and so, I was with some friends of mine who were clergy or or Catholic workers or just a mix of different people, and we would we would kneel down and we were just praying and getting pepper sprayed or whatever else it happened, uh, whatever kind of violence that um, that the state or that private uh, security firms decided to meet out because of our, you know, uh, intervening, um, in a project like that, that makes that much money. So just to see it all in person was really amazing to me. And, and I mean, I, I, it's hard to put into words. Um, I did write a good bit about it. If anyone is interested in that again, it's on the, that same website that I mentioned earlier. Um, uh, it's really hard to put into words how meaningful that experience was and then what you're asking about, Ryan, I think is really relevant today. And I was hoping to have a chance to talk about it in um, and relate it to what's going on this year. Uh, but when I got back, you know, I was like just filled with this spirit and this sense of like things are possible. Uh, solidarity is possible. Uh, you know, I just... Uh, just really filled with the sense that that um, things can get done, and I was really amazed and disheartened to see that the almost the majority of all the stories that I saw, I would say every single story that I saw online that was covering the events did not mention spirituality or prayer unless it was in a passing sentence, uh, but it was never the center of what was being said, and that was absolutely the main point. Um, that elders were 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 asking you know, the main thing that was being asked of anyone there was to pray and to engage in some way with a sense of the spiritual, a sense of what is sacred about the land around us, and and all these things. And instead, what I saw, I, don't, I won't say that it was every single article, but very frequently, and maybe even a majority of the stories that I did see, the center of what uh, the story that the journalists had found or decided to focus on was. Uh, white people showing up, you know, treating this place like it's a, a music festival, being really disrespectful. And I'm not, I'm not going to say that that didn't happen. I'm sure that, I'm sure that there were isolated instances of that, but I think most people who were there had a really incredibly powerful experience. And to, to go to a place that is an indigenous led movement uh, that is really massively organized. I mean, like, thousands and thousands of people, just the size of the encampment was the first thing that just knocked me over. Tens of thousands, you know, huge amount of people were there. Very organized, uh, you know, dining halls were set up, people were fed, everyone was just working together, supporting each other, looking out for each other. And to come away from that and look for these incidences where people were being disrespectful and the focus on that, it's really about dividing people and tearing down a movement. And the reason that I was hoping you would ask about that too is that I think this year we've seen a lot of the same stuff uh, when it comes to protests. The largest, what are, what are by some people's estimates, by a lot of people's estimates, the largest protest movements in the history of this country uh, for racial justice and and specifically to end police violence against African American people in this country. 
And the focus of a lot of these stories has been white anarchists are secretly behind it. That's not only racist, that's also hugely inaccurate. And it's really, as a person who is a white person who lived in uh, probably the longest running anarchist community in the country, the Catholic worker, filled with a lot of white anarchists, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it, also, to, to quote some, someone uh, that I saw say this, uh, you know, this is not my um, personal experience, but someone, someone else I saw say online, as a white anarchist, I can promise you we're not responsible for this because if we were capable of doing this, we would have done this 10 years, you know, <laughs> years and years ago. Um, so I, I just think that, uh, I think Shay, you were talking about solidarity and I think it's really important to, to not just, um, for, it's really important for people to, 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 it's just a, such an important concept right now that, that what that means is, is, um, you look at what people's goals are and you don't tear them down because they're going about things in different ways. And, and Chelsea, Reverend Chelsea, you mentioned that, you know, what, you're not so sure that we're going to be able to convince you know governments to uh, to do everything that needs to be done. I'm I'm totally convinced that we're not going to be able to to convince governments to do that because governments around the planet their explicit purpose is to protect and shield capital and do whatever they can to make it as fluid as possible. And so I really, if a few people smash windows along the way to trying to overturn capitalism because they're personally enraged at capitalism, I'm not going to spend any time condemning those people. Uh, and also as someone who was out, you know, when the riots were happening in lower Manhattan, uh, the majority of people that I saw were young people of color smashing windows and who were angry and had every reason imaginable to be that angry. And if people are that angry about broken windows instead of broken bodies, then we just need to reconsider everything that we're talking about. Great. Um, Reverend Chelsea, I want to give you a chance to respond to the question. And we also have just about this idea of um, spiritual community right now and how people um, are finding community, what your role as an interfaith minister in that has been, and also off of what we're talking about, which is um, solidarity as well. And we also have some uh, questions as and from the audience, too, that we'll get to right after you're done. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, Nathan, when you were saying earlier about you didn't know if you were a faith leader, I was like, I'm totally in the same boat. I mean, you know, we're all sort of wandering this path as we're walking it. And, um, and I and yeah, and like this weird thing, I'm ordained as an interspiritual minister and don't really have a congregation. I, I work as a spiritual director. I have... I feel like my my ministry is in sacred activism, and for 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 the last four or five years, at least until um, until COVID hit, I've been convening community uh, in my house in Brooklyn um, uh, called the Brooklyn Center for Sacred Activism, and um, and really exploring how how ritual and how faith and how spiritual spirituality but not necessarily religion and activism and vocation and how all of these things come together and also many of us being um white folks young white folks who are sort of um 
like disenfranchised from from traditional institutions of faith and um, and really looking for community and really looking for something that speaks to uh, I, I wouldn't to to like everything that's happening in the world and and to our desires. I think a lot of us left churches um, and other houses of worship because because it wasn't wasn't relating to us. Um, and I shouldn't say we're all white. I mean, in my neighborhood, though, like there's definitely like this exploration of like being mostly white folks being in a gentrifying neighborhood that's the largest Caribbean diaspora in the world. And like, what does that mean? Like, how does it what does it mean to like not have a home and find ourselves sort of disrupting um, disrupting culture and tradition where we are finding home and, and living. Um, anyway, so lots of really, really complex explorations there. Um, but I think, I think what I've definitely noticed is that people are hungry for, for something to speak to, for something to really bridge the inner and the outer to like bridge like these spiritual experiences with with activism and like doing good works in the world um and and responding to that um and i think i also went to standing rock and and feel like a lot of these questions came up there and and really speaking to to wanting an activism that feels spiritually grounded um you know and i wonder how many um, young activists were going there who were like atheists or non-religious who like were like hungry or totally open to the the spiritual practice going on at Standing. I mean, Standing Rock was a spiritual experience. You know, um, it was the first thing that was said when you arrived. It was like, this is a prayer camp. You're here to pray. And to just be reminded of that every single day, like what does what does it mean for our activism to look like that, and what does what does activism as a spiritual path look like? I think that's sort of the question that that leads me forward most of the time. Thanks. Um, wow. Thanks. I yeah. I don't want to cut this off, but we're also almost at time, and we have two questions. Um, we have a question is, uh, how does this, um, how does the current zombie apocalypse, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, how does this impact the present eco-apocalypse? And also wondering if we have more diversity in the panel and future talks, of course. Um, so how has the COVID-19 pandemic kind of um, affected or impacted the current present eco-apocalypse? Anyone have a good take on that? I have a take. Okay, great. Uh, so I am going to set aside, like, there haven't been really marked impacts on carbon emissions, all that stuff. Instead of the technical things, and I'm actually going to say that I think that in some ways there's a lot of consonance as far as the response of the state and of capitalist enterprises uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic and the way that they're also responding to the climate crisis, Right where when it became clear that the COVID-19 pandemic uh, was going to be a pandemic and was going to cause mass death and to necessitate some form of, you know, shutting down public activities, things like that, um, there was a pretty obvious need for 
some what I'll call common sense policies because we're reclaimed that from the right, right? Which is like, we need to expand uh, Medicare for all, right? So that everybody has health insurance in this pandemic. Um, we need to pay people to stay home because people are putting themselves in danger. Um, we need to uh, immediately pivot existing factories to manufacture PPE uh, because there was a shortage of that and there still is in many places in this country. Um, we need to make sure that everybody's getting payments when they're losing their job because of this crisis, when the theater closes down, when your hotel closes down, things like that. Um, and we also need to immediately start making plans for an economic recovery once we have a vaccine that prioritizes the kind of green infrastructure buildup that will create jobs and transition us off of fossil fuels for good. Instead, what we got was essentially none of that. Um, we've got a situation in which the in which billionaires have consolidated their wealth in this pandemic, right? Uh, whereas low-income workers are most likely to have faced permanent job loss. Um, I think it was like 40% of low-income workers have lost their jobs in perpetuity at this point. Um, and that is a case of the existing capital S state um, and of the capitalist system um, taking this crisis on and using it as an opportunity for uh, further accumulation of wealth and profits and all of that on the backs of workers. Um, that's the blueprint for the climate crisis. We also see that in the ways in which denialism and anti-intellectualism has been used by these actors, right? Like COVID denialism and climate denialism are basically a circle at this point. The same people deny both. Uh, and they're denying both in service to the continued operation of capitalism with no challenges to its internal contradictions or its logics. I think that's a great answer. Um, you're right. The, um, the climate denying church that I referenced earlier was a packed mega church um, with no masks. So also a pandemic denying church. And I think also we've written this like kind of what our response can be to the, the ecological crisis, I think primarily through these networks of mutual aid that have sprung up, correct? So I think in terms of like climate organizing, I think that's where a lot of people are at. And I think where faith communities can particularly weigh in. Um, so another question, which I think is great, um, and we'll end on this one, is Rachel wants to know, is curious about, I wonder if there's a connection between dominant white cultures, dismissal, jadedness, skepticism of spirituality, and the dismissal of BIPOC movements which doesn't marginalize, but often centers spirituality. And then Rachel says, I say this noticing that spirit-led activists who are white are less common than spirit or religious-led activists that are BIPOC. Um, anyone have a good take on that? I mean, I mean, immediately I'm thinking just like, just like dominant white liberal secularism that's like dominated, um, the country in, in terms of like the academy um, and the, the culture over the last few years. I think it's like been both as like, a, I mean, we could talk about like the apocalypticism movement as like a reaction to the rise of 20th century liberalism and through like fundamentalism. Um, yeah, and it is like the dominant, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any good statements or thoughts about that?
Um, maybe I'll just say something try to make it short so that other people can weigh in too. Um, and it sort of goes back to your earlier question about the, like, how uh, past religious stories and, spirit, and spiritual myths have, have kind of started to look like prophecy. Um, I think that there's sort of a, that to me, global warming is sort of this, this moment that, um, that has validated this way of thinking and of seeing the world in a way that maybe uh, a, a sort of dead, um, uh, you know, literally like dead worlds, uh, non-animate uh, way of seeing the world could could never have maybe expected. Uh, and and that's sort of, um, again, I think I've maybe expressed it better in, in the, in writing, um, but, but sort of that this, you know, this, this past way of thinking that was subsumed by, this scientific rational worldview um, was very clear about, you know, every step of the way, certain things like, well, you don't uh, just cut down an entire forest. That's absurd. And then there was sort of a rational response. Well, that's just, those are just myths. What what do you think is going to happen? You think some forest God will come and smite you because you cut down an entire forest? You know, no, we're going to, extract the uh the gold from underneath it we're going to make lumber from the tree we're going to put all this to value uh and every step of the way there were these different reactions and cutting down these you know mythological beliefs that said that's not you just can't do that uh and we don't need to provide a step-by-step scientific analysis to explain why it's wrong we just know because this is how we've lived for eons and it, and it has served us well and and we're there's, that's the sense of what is sacred about this. And uh, disregarding that one after another, the scientific worldview kind of proceeded to this point where now the, the same tools that disregarded all that and insisted that those things were, were myths is now saying, actually, it looks like there's going to be a massive flood around the entire planet. It looks like there's going to be uh, fire raining from the skies. It looks like, you know, all these things that were, were basically foretold as myths in these smaller ways in, in cultures all over the world is coming true in this, in this enormous, unthinkable way. Uh, and, um, I just feel like it's a, it's just, it's a repudiation of white culture, uh, in every way. So, um, so maybe that's why it's, it's more common to see, uh, indigenous people and people of color, um, fighting against it. I'm I'm kind of curious. I don't really have a clean answer for this, but one thing that comes to mind is I feel like we're sort of caught between an anti-intellectualism and a hyper-intellectualism because uh, I think we can see Christian groups that have both of those things going on. And in both circumstances, there's, there's actually like a denial of the body. And, um, and I think that you know, mostly white Christian communities are like devoid of culture. Like I think about Resma Menicum, Menicum using the phrase people of culture instead of people of color. I think there's something also happening around here or around that going on here. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's not really a, a, succinct thought but i just wonder like what the influence there is 
Totally. Shay, you have any good takes? No? Hmm. I was, what was I thinking about? I was also thinking just like from a liberationist perspective, like, of course, like white people are like spiritually dead, right? Um, and so it's like from like, from a Christian liberationist like perspective, like if you are a church built on the accumulation of capital, a lot of that which happened with enslaved workers, um, then the, the God of the oppressed is of course not going to be on your side. And I think from a liberationist perspective, I think that's um, where I would choose to dwell. Um, and it's kind of like a, anyone, I think activists that particularly don't bring any type of spiritual or like effective or body centered um, practice to your work. Um, you're like denying their like reality of oppression. And I think once you, I think, again, as we talked about earlier, like really grasp the, um, I mean, like the real lived realities of people that are oppressed and the real reality of environmental racism, of climate apartheid. If that is your daily experience, then you have like a spiritual mandate. You have that hermeneutical privilege and the spirit is with you versus like, I think as we see in a larger context, like, uh, what we're referring to is just like this dismissal and skepticism of spirituality and religion. I think for me, that's how I would draw like broad lines. Um, yeah. Um, let's see what time we, okay. We're one minute over. Thanks everyone. If you like this conversation today, um, if you want to be on the uh, planning committee, um, for the next one of these, please uh, get in contact with the Religious Socialism uh, Working Group. You can get in contact with us uh, religious.socialism, religious.socialism at socialist.nyc. Um, also find us on Twitter and Instagram, Religious Socialism. We'd love to have you, um, love to invite you into this conversation and keep organizing and keep influencing this conversation and taking back the apocalypse. Um, and really lifting that veil. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everyone. I'll see y'all later. Bye. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.